Welcome to the Studio Tulsa podcast. I'm Rich Fisher, an occasional feature from time to time. And my guest today is the winner of the Tulsa Library Trust's 2023 Peggy V. Helmrich Distinguished Author Award, Amor Tolls. Tolls is the author of three highly successful and critically hailed novels. Rules of Civility, his debut work, had comparisons to The Great Gatsby and follows a young woman in 1930s New York who finds herself thrust upward into New York society. His next novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, tells the story of an aristocratic Russian count who, after the Russian Revolution, is sentenced to house arrest in Moscow's luxury hotel, The Metropole. His most recent novel, The Lincoln Highway, tells the story of four youths on a road trip from Nebraska to New York, with Odyssey-like encounters along the way. Tolls will receive the award at the end of November with a public presentation on Thursday, November 30th at 5.30 at Tulsa's Central Library. You can learn more about the event at tulsalibrary.org. Amor Tolls, congratulations on the Helmrich Award, and thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for uh, for having me, Rich, and it's, it's a real honor to receive the award. I'm looking forward to coming to Tulsa. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many of the recipients have very long uh, book lists. You have three novels, but each novel <laughs> are amazing in their own way. Three different journeys, three different stories, and these amazing characters. Have you always been driven by character? Because that's the thing when I read your, your material is that it, I, I'm, I'm getting an incredible sense of character. It's a good question. I, 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 I... I think that as a, a reader, I, I've wanted to write fiction since I was a, a kid, and I've written fiction since I was a teenager, and I wrote fiction in college and graduate school, um, and so it's been a major part of my life. And I, I think that as one who's always wanted to write but was all reading along the way, I, I think that you you sort of discover through the literature you love of how important characters are and the bringing of characters to life are in literature. You know, if we think of Shakespeare, of course, as sort of the pinnacle of uh, narrative writing in English, what stands out for us, aside from the speeches and the, the great sort of moral philosophy, the poetry, are the individuals themselves that he so successfully brings to life from all different uh, walks of life, uh, people of different races and religions and genders and social classes, all brought to life with equal vigor. And that's what really makes those plays come alive and persist in, and I, and I think that's true as, as the novel develops, that the great novels very often are sort of resting on the shoulders of their characters, as it were, you know, whether it's Anna Karenina or, uh, or Ahab and Ishmael and Moby Dick. And so I, I think there is this sort of desire as a young writer to really master the art of bringing an individual from nothing into life for the reader. And uh, a lot of the craft, a lot of the experimentation, a lot of the practice goes towards that goal in a way in particular, as opposed to, say, setting or dialogue or plot, which all certainly uh, have their their importance in narrative, but none are as important, I think, ultimately, as the development of of the individuals in the story. Of course, the one thing that's interesting about your writing is you do create main characters that are really engaging and people you want to know and and understand better. 
but you also create a whole cast of characters that each all have their interesting backstories. And I think as your uh, novels have continued, that that process has broadened to, you know, the Lincoln Highway, where you have all sorts of people telling their stories. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. I, if I look back at, at my process and, you know, I will design a book for several years before I start to uh, consider writing chapter one. And during that multi-year period, I'm filling notebooks as I try to imagine the story in every detail. And that does include the settings and but uh, certainly the characters and their backgrounds, their personalities, as well as the events. I'm sort of beginning through, to sort of imagine all that through notebooks. Once I sort of know the book from beginning to end, that's when I'll finally outline it and write it. And uh, once I've written a first draft, uh, the second draft will I, will, I will seriously review that first draft and make meaningful and material changes. And if I look back, the one of the biggest, most consistent changes from draft one to draft two to draft three for me has been the elevation of secondary characters. So if you think about it, and it's sort of common sense in a way, is you start with say, you know, one, two, three main characters in a narrative. And in that first draft, I am going to, to really bring them to life and tell you everything you need to know about them and the nuances of their thought and give them time to express themselves and, and to pursue how they see interactions and see each other then you have the secondary characters who are part of the story. Well, in, when you move from first draft to second draft, inevitably what happens is I'm going to start reducing the amount of time that is that I've dedicated to those primary characters. I've overdone it. I've told you too much. I've shown you too much. Um, I, the paragraphs have gone on too long. Descriptions of their inner life are too detailed. And so I start to pare that back, to get it back to the point where it is sort of more uh, vital and uh, specific and that kind of opens up space in the narrative. Now, at the same time, as I'm rereading, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, that character who's a small character in the first third of the book is, is such an intriguing character, and I haven't done them justice. As I've written them in the first draft, they sort of are, are a, 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 a cardboard cutout sort of to fulfill their, their role in the narrative, and they deserve uh, a more intricate representation of themselves. And we should be able to hear their take on these events. We should be able to understand how they differ from the main characters. We should have a better sense of the critical role they play in events. And so I find myself going from draft one to draft two, inevitably paring back the real estate, as it were, that I've given to the main characters to make them sharper uh, and at the same time bringing those secondary characters to life. So I really appreciate your question because uh, it is one of the things I value, that I most enjoy about the editing process is 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 having those characters that were big characters really suddenly given their their uh, time on the stage in a more appropriate way is it a conscious decision to overtell the story of the main character in the first draft and then you realize in your editing process i'm going to pare this back absolutely because i you know i think you 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 have that uh, desire as the author to make sure that everything is out there so so that you haven't left anything out um, but but to, the best way to do that is in ways to overdo it and pare it back in a way that's easier, I think, for me than to do a first draft where you've only half realized your central characters. Because if you've only half realized your central characters, then you may have all kinds of problems in the first draft that, uh, because you may not have fully understood who they are yet. You may have not fully understood what they need to do or you may, may not have fully understood 
the psychological and philosophical stakes that they face as they uh, take actions over the course of the story. So, and to rebuild that, you know, after the first draft is done is very challenging. So better that to fully imagine and and fully describe those characters, I think, that, that are at the center of the tale and to make sure that the tale is fully realized that it's uh, on the right course, that it's fully shaped. Um, and then you can start that process of pairing back because I, I think many readers would not anticipate this, but it is ironic, but it's a, it's a paradox of writing that the things that you take away very often are what bring characters to life. That, that if you tell too much, you're weighing the character down uh, with unnecessary information and overbearing description. And, and you start to pull that apart. And actually what that does is, is bring that fully imagined character, allow them to breathe and uh, and to move through the story with more grace and for the benefit of the reader. So, so yes, I think it is for me beneficial to overplay the hand of the lead characters in draft one. Um, and then in draft two, start to pull apart all the unnecessary elements. You always speak about the importance of the outline in, in your novel projects. Uh, how important is that process? And when do you say, oh, we have a new pathway once the writing has occurred? I, I am, as you say, a, a very dedicated outliner. And that's partly because I, in my 30s, I, I spent seven years writing my first novel and and, it, and I didn't like it. So, I, you know, I ended up having to throw away the whole thing. And and my discovery from that process was that the, the biggest problem was that I had not outlined that book. And uh, and that was different writers are trying to achieve different things. But what I am trying to achieve in a novel benefits from an outline without question, because I want the beginning, middle and end to sort of come together in a very cohesive whole. And uh, both in terms of the events, but in terms of the thematic development and the poetry of the book and planning suits that purpose um but one of the one of the uh, sort of a different reason why i outline and i think this is counterintuitive for many readers is that the more outline i do the more which outline is really a problem solving process you know who are the characters uh, what are their backgrounds why do they do what they do what do they sound like what is this what does the house look like you know let's say uh who's there at the dinner when the fight occurs you know these are all sort of to some degree problem solving uh matters and if i walked into a narrative and i don't in a chapter i don't know those things what ends up happening is that the problem solving part of my brain takes over you know which is really the the uh the left side of the brain which is analytical and uh, and and it pushes the right side of the brain to the side, which is the more imaginative side of the brain. So if, and this is, you know, my own personal take, but if if I have outlined carefully and I know everything that's going to happen, that allows the poetic side of myself to really take over the actual writing of the chapter. And so there is this paradoxical thing that, that it's sort of what sounds like a very technical, analytical type A thing to do to really focus on having an outline. Actually, I'm doing that in order to free up the opposite part of myself. Uh, the part of myself that is tied to the subconscious, to imagery, to dreams, to the sound of language, and let that be the part of, of myself which ultimately decides how the sentences are written, um, because it doesn't have to decide what's going to happen. It already knows those things. You, you've said many times uh, you always knew that you wanted to be a writer from first grade on, but that dream was uh, deferred by life by a couple of decades, the need to, and family expectations that you were going to go out and earn a living, and that living was on Wall Street. 
How did that detour from sort of your calling in a way affect how and what you did decide to write when you could write full time? Uh, You're absolutely right. Your description is is right on. I spent uh, 21 years working on Wall Street. Uh, The first 10, I I really stopped writing and uh, to focus on uh, the firm that uh, that I was helping build with my colleagues. And that there was an anxiety during that phase, the anxiety being that what if I don't come back to writing? What if I fail to to fulfill this ambition, this passion I have, this purpose I have in in writing fiction? And um, but eventually, almost out of dread, the dread of having failed to write. I got myself in the habit of writing on the weekends. I did this failed project that I just mentioned for seven years, but I learned from that. And and, and eventually I went on to writing Rules of Civility. uh, And when that book became a bestseller, I retired from my firm. Well, in answer to your question, if you you think about that trajectory, I I think that the, the different writers come at it in different things. We all have different experiences. My experience of having had an investment career for 20 years and having that really dominated my sense of who I was, uh, my reputation among my friends and peers, my standing with my family, you know, my my role as a breadwinner, all those things were very much defined by my life as an investment professional. And what that meant was that when I sat down to write Rules of Civility, I really did it for no one but myself. I mean, most of my friends in New York didn't even know that I wrote fiction at that point. Uh, my colleagues didn't know that I wrote fiction. Um, my my family had practically forgotten that I wrote fiction at that point. Uh, I didn't need to write fiction to earn a living. Uh, it wasn't uh, my my reputation among my peers was not wrapped up in whether or not the book succeeded or failed because they didn't know I wrote. So when I sat down to write Rules of Civility, I really could just write it for myself. And that is... Uh, that's not to be underestimated. That freedom uh, can allow a kind of work that uh, is can be better than the work that is being produced under the the other stresses that I've mentioned. Um, and so, so that that was the real benefit. Uh, the 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 price I paid was that I was ten years behind in mm-hmm. in my output, as it were. But the the benefit I got was that uh, I was I was coming from a place where I was really writing with a great sense of artistic freedom. You know, uh, you talk about that anxiety. An early mentor, Peter Mathiason of the Paris Review, told you if you chose Wall Street, you'd effectively give up writing. You've said that a number of times. I imagine that had some contribution towards that anxiety you were talking about. Well, we most certainly. That's right. You know, he was the, the, the person who really showed uh, uh, faith in my writing when I was a younger man, you know, in my maybe 19 or 20. And uh, that meant a lot to me. And he was a great mentor as I began to develop my craft as, an, as a writer. Um, so when I went to Wall Street, he was very disappointed, uh, rightfully so. And he rightfully you know, warned me that there was a very good likelihood that once I had stopped writing and gotten in the habit of going to the office and, uh, and had gotten comfortable setting aside my dream of being a writer, that, that that could define the future for me very quickly, you know, that you could wake up one day and and that's you would fail to write. And uh, and so him calling attention to that and his personal disappointment were both very good incentives to get back to work. But I'm, I'm curious about really getting serious about writing once you're in your 40s. You said you've always said you've missed 10 years, but what did you gain? I, you know, other than the artistic freedom, I, 
I suppose um, I, I, I think I could have written rules of civility as a 25 year old. I don't think that I needed, uh, you know, 15 years of extra wisdom to write that work. Um, Gentlemen in Moscow, probably not as easily. I don't think that I would have written a gentleman in Moscow as a 25 year old, or at least not has done have done as good a job about it. And, and that's partly because you know, rules of civility is about 25 year olds. It's about uh, sort of that moment in life where sort of the world is opening up around uh, these, you know, sort of this loose uh, assembly of friends in the city. And, um, and, you know, and, and so that would have been fine. Gentleman in Moscow, though, it's, you know, it, a big part of that is a book is about parenting, you know, and uh, and and so that is something which I had not had pers- as per- as much experience with, uh, you know, uh, when I wrote was a civility and had no spirit experience with when I was in my twenties. Um, and there's a part of a gentleman in Moscow which is dealing with aging, uh, and, and you have the wisdom of that. But I, I don't want to overstate that because we, you know, if we look at the the Beatles music, for instance, uh, you know, the, the Beatles music covers almost every aspect of human experience. You know, we have Eleanor Rigby, you know, this very sad story about a, a lonely person late in life. And, and you know, they, they're they in their early 20s when they're writing that music, right? You know, their entire catalog was written before they were 30, basically. Uh, and so um, I, I don't want to suggest that, uh, that age is a necessity in any way for writing profound work that deals with any aspect of the human condition, because that's not true. And we look at Hemingway and Fitzgerald, who did you know their greatest work in their twenties and and work that t- dealt with the full experience of life. Um, so, so that 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 can have us too. We, we you know we have Philip Roth, who I think did his greatest work as an older man. You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, so we have you know Tolstoy did his greatest work as an older man. You can have both versions of it. Uh, so, so I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't put too much uh, into the, that uh, that I was smart to put off writing. I don't, I don't think I was. I don't think it was uh, that, that like I couldn't have written a book when I was younger. I think I could have, and and I and um, but just my life went in a different direction. My guest is Amor Tolls, a novelist, uh, author of three novels: uh, "The Rules of Civility," "A Gentleman in Moscow," and "The Lincoln Highway," and he is the author of a forthcoming set of stories and a novella titled table for two which is coming out in 2024 and he's the winner of the 2023 peggy v helmrich distinguished author award well i was struck by something you wrote about the period uh, late 1930s of rules of civility and it was the fact that as you said you looked at the popular media of that time in the 1930s it was all optimistic and you compare that to what our popular media has been after another period of huge upheaval uh, 2008 and certainly the last few years politically and everything is dystopian what does that say about this particular period was that an attractor to writing about that particular time it it, it certainly presented a paradox that interested me and I, I think I was you know born in the 60s and so my parent my father was born in the you know the end of the depression and and we heard stories of the depression that were sort of handed down and they all they all came in in essence the shape of of uh of steinbeck's grapes of wrath right you know they, they were all about uh and appropriately about hardship and about uh tightening your belt and unemployment and and uh you know the struggling to get by and um and, and becoming stronger for it as a nation as a, as you know as individual families 
And, and that was a large part of the narrative that got handed down from the depression. And so sort of, yes, I, I was kind of fascinated by in retrospect, so I thought about it and you realize that the thirties was also in 1929 to 1939, which was the depression, um, that that period was also the height of, you know, swing music as a art form. It was the height of, uh, the Marx brothers did all their movies, uh, basically during the era of the depression, uh, 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 Stare and Rogers did all of their musicals during that era. And uh, Rockefeller Center was built in that era. And, and so there was, while it was this very challenging time and, and which had a great impact on the nation, and, uh, and I, I certainly don't discount that in any way for any of the families who struggled, simultaneously there was uh, this great artistic uh, uh, boom in the creation of all kinds of of art that was both optimistic or fun or romantic or aspiring, you know, uh, at the same time. And, and I think that's very, it's a very interesting aspect of it. It's a window on the fact that whenever we go through any period, we can go through it in two ways simultaneously. We can face a period simultaneously with uh, dread and with hope. And, you know, certainly we're, we're in a moment in time, you know, uh, in the fall of 20, 23, where there's a lot of uh, very uh, dispiriting things happening, not only in the United States, but around the world, you know, uh, and we we watch that and uh, and that fills us with dread. But at the same time, uh, you know, we 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 push forward and we have aspirations for things to be better, whether that's with climate change or with issues in the Middle East or with uh, racism or, or anti-Semitism. You know, we, we do have the hope that we're going to overcome these these challenges which appear to be intractable intractable and we do occasionally make progress in these various things and uh, and so we do i think it's very natural in a time like this to have the two things in in going on at once uh in our minds and in our hearts which is both the anxiety about the challenges but uh, the hope that that there's uh that that we're moving in a, that things will become will get better and art can play a very interesting role in that sort of paradox I want to ask you about uh, the Lincoln Highway because the first two books, uh, you know, Rules of Civility, set in New York at a you know the late 1930s, a time of great social mobility, uh, in, in the eyes of your characters there, a gentleman Moscow, a longer period book uh, that uh, sort of tells the story of this uh, aristocrat who's now being confined to house arrest and arguably the best hotel in the whole Soviet Union, but still in under house arrest and witnessing a lot of events. And in, in the case of the Lincoln Highway, you're going to rural Nebraska and, the, and you know, the, the Great Plains and telling the story of three 18-year-olds and an eight-year-old who set off on an adventure. Give us a sense of what you were thinking when, when this project first began to take shape. Uh, for me, the the beginning of a story or of a novel is usually almost always like a sentence long. It's a little notion, a little conceit. And uh, like in the case of a gentleman in Moscow, it was a guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. I sort of had that idea and I thought, oh yeah, that's interesting as a book. And, and in the case of the Lincoln highway, it's, I have, it's what I think most readers would guess, which is that I sort of had this image of a young man, honorable young man, returning from doing time in a juvenile prison, ready to start his life anew, only to discover when the warden drives off that 
two friends from the prison have hidden in the trunk of the warden's car and and that they sort of set him off course uh, from his you know, intended direction. That's kind of where I started. I don't know where, frankly, that idea came from. I have no no idea. It was it was uh, 20 years ago, maybe that I had that notion. And when something like that grabs me, usually right away, I have I can visualize aspects of it for whatever reason. So right away, I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. This will be take place in the Midwest. The kid will be returning to the family farm. His father will have died and the farm will be in bankruptcy. I'll have a younger brother. Uh, the two friends in the trunk will be uh, from New York, but very different guys. And uh, he'll want to go to California. They'll end up taking him to New York City. And and the whole it'll be in the 1950s. That makes sense. And the whole thing will last 10 days. And sort of everything that I just described, that's all stuff that I kind of knew within really minutes of having the idea in the first place. So I have the idea and then in a matter of minutes, as I'm thinking about it, all that stuff sort of presents itself. And then you go into this multi-year design phase where I start to imagine the story in every detail. And, you know, why uh, why did it feel right, you know, to be 10-day story? Why did it feel right to be a 1950s tale? Um, you know, so, sometimes I know the answer. Sometimes it's I only realize it kind of when the book is done. You know, sometimes uh, it just feels right. Like, you know, from the duration standpoint, having this sort of kid arrive with the kids, with the buddies in the trunk. And it's sort of like, yeah, this would be a great sort of 10 day story because it'll be a sort of about things happening at a very fast pace and and responding as things are unfolding and uh, and and the sort of the friends interacting in this fast moving sequence of events. And so that sort of felt right. The 50s, um, I think I really only understood why that story was set in the 50s, you know, once I was done. And, you know, and, and one of the reasons, which I kind of intimated a minute ago, is that I, I was finishing the book and it occurred to me that uh, my father was 18 in 1954. <laughs> All the characters, key characters in this story are about 18. It's in 1954. And, and I sort of realized, oh, yeah, right. I mean, I, I didn't study the fifties in college and, you know, I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time reading books about the fifties, uh, but the, I felt very comfortable writing about the fifties, but of course it's because it's when my parents were came of age. And on the one hand, we're highly influenced by uh, the decade that, you know, when we go from say six to 16, when everything that's happening in the world, it makes a big impression upon us. But on the other hand, we, you know, we're very affected by the decade that our parents were, you know, 17, 18, 16, 15, because that's the decade that affected them. And that they're, it's constantly influencing how they parent us, the stories they tell, the ethics they have, their worldview. So you, know, you kind of come into life with two eras that you're very intimately uh, familiar with. The one that you came of age in, but the one that your parents came of the age of uh, two. And and that's the one that informed really the writing of uh, of Lincoln Highway. I think what was really interesting is I, you know, you you shared the the story from everybody's perspective uh, through the course of the book, but you know, here we have three 18 year olds, yet they have some some beyond 18 year old wisdom in them in the writing, and I kept having to think, oh, these guys are only 18. You know, there there, there are certain things that happen. You say, oh yeah, of course they're 18, but there's also especially in Emmett, he's just got this gravitas, I think. Yeah. And then I mean, that kind of goes back, I guess, to that sort of my feeling about, like, say, the Beatles being 18 and wise or 19 and wise. I, the 18 is, 
18 to 20 is a very interesting point in, in our lives because we know actually medically speaking, it's an odd moment in time, right? Because our brain is going, it's, it's transforming from sort of a teen state to an adult state and, uh, and, and it's shifting how it makes decisions. Uh, when we're 16, 17, 18, we, uh, we can be very impulsive. Uh, we can be irrational. We can be more courageous as a result. Um, you know, and that's where we understand that as we, then the brain sort of begins to shift at that point, uh, we become more cautious, more thoughtful, uh, more, uh, rational in the decisions that we make. And, and these young men are kind of right at the cusp of that, that moment in time where, uh, they're, they're exiting youth. Uh, where youth is really governed by all the things that they've been told to do by their parents and by the school and by the church and what have you. And they're entering adulthood where suddenly all of those decisions are theirs to make. And uh, and so you, you see almost in each character sort of the battle between that moment in time, the sort of the impulsiveness of youth uh, but also the 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 govern being governed by parental you know uh, issues and things like that, then shifting to this moment where you have full freedom, um, and your decision making is is evolving kind of in real time. Well, uh, I know you have a new collection of stories coming out next year. Uh, I, I suppose this is halfway between hopefully the next novel down the road, but yes. uh, Table for Two. Uh, uh, revisits a character from the uh, Rules of Civility, uh, Eve Ross, who features very heavily in the first half of the book, and it's where she went, <laughs> basically. And then uh, yeah. another one, uh, which I've had the pleasure of reading, the De Domenico uh, fragment, uh, you have another engaging character, this sort of uh, artsy, uh, you know, Sotheby's uh appraiser deal maker type named Percival Skinner from old old money who sees one last chance to to make a little money and be relevant again uh, as he's sort of become the the male version of the ladies who lunch uh, I love this little story thank you thank you very much and you you describe it very well yeah, the the collection as 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 you notice is is both stories and a novella it has six stories uh, that are all set in New York around the year 2000, or most of them are. Um, and they're sort of in investigations of individual characters in the New York landscape and society, in New York society. Uh, but uh, then there's this sort of other, and, and the D. Domenico fragment is one of those. As you point out, uh, those who are audible uh, uh, customers can hear a version of that, hear the, that story uh, for free uh, on Audible. Um, and John Lithgow uh, does the the reading of it, and it's it's and he's terrific um, in this sort of funny f story about uh, a waspy family, as you say, with uh, Percival and near sort of having known money as a younger man and having run out, basically sort of finding himself in this situation where he has a chance to make a little bit more money um, in in contemporary New York. Um, but the other half of the collection, other than the stories, is this novella, and and the story there is that when I finished writing rules of civility um I, I really didn't feel like i wanted there was anything i needed to tell the reader more about katie the main character or tinker uh, her romantic interest and the the person that really was bothering me kind of in a way was eve this really uh, sort of uh, funny and spirited character who's katie's best friend who disappears kind of halfway through the novel and or two-thirds of the novel heads out 
but she says she's going to go home to Indiana and, uh, but she never shows up. And it turns out that she's extended her train ticket and gone all the way to Hollywood um, in 1938. And in, after I wrote uh, Rules of Civility, uh, that book came out in 2011, I, I spent some time imagining what happened to Eve when she arrived in Hollywood. And I wrote uh, about a 60 page short story that sort of talks about the first uh, several people that she meets when she first arrives in Hollywood and how she affects each each of them. And then sort of ultimately how she kind of gets her start in a new life in Hollywood. But it's quite short and enigmatic, the 60, 60 pages. And it was going to be included in this collection that comes out in April. And uh, about a year ago, as as everything was sort of getting ready and the collection was in place, I, I said, you know what, I got to I got to go back to Eve. Uh, it's, it's not ready yet. And um, I had had all these notions, having already sort of written that of, of what would of what was it was an incomplete. I was not doing Eve justice in giving the reader sort of a 60 page in, in, introduction to her new life. And so I went back and I expanded that to about 200 pages. So that is a it is a, a, a meaningful novella uh, where it takes her arrival and you really get to see uh, what happens to her over the course of nine months and to those people that she meets. And um, and, and it's it's noirish, uh, I suppose, and, and I think a lot of fun. So I think that readers, readers will enjoy it. All right. Well, Amor Tolls, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and congratulations once again on the Helmrich Award. Thanks, Rich, and I look forward to both coming to Tulsa and, and seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the community there and meeting you face to face. Amor Tolls, the winner of the Tulsa Library Trust 2023 Peggy V. Helmrich Distinguished Author Award. His most recent novel is The Lincoln Highway, and his new collection of stories, Table for Two, comes out in April of 2024. You can meet him and also attend a book signing. Thursday, November 30th at 5.30 at Central Library. You can learn more at tulsalibrary.org. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I'm Rich Fisher.